I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. Truth is the most convincing story that maps onto reality, and that's why the central narrative is falling apart. Fewer people are convinced by the story each day as they begin to see the central narrative for the fiction that it is. The time for allowing them to make us feel like strangers in our own country is over. We're Americans. The founders began the fight for human liberty and self-governance, and it's up to us to finish the job. This is the end game. It's Monday, January 31st, 2022, the 376th day of dystopia. Before we get started, I just want to extend a thank you to some of my friends on Telegram. The storm has arrived 17, Pepe Lives Matter. Thank you guys so much for uh, blasting out the podcast episode with Cash Patel over the weekend. Nothing helps me more than people sharing the show. And so I'm glad everybody has liked that interview. I think Cash and I will do some more of those in the future. And I have a great interview coming up this week that'll either be posted on Thursday or Saturday. Everybody's going to love it. If you want to follow the podcast or support the show in any way, all of that information is in the episode notes. You can see them on your podcast app. So big Trump rally in Texas on Saturday night. There were a reported 85,000 people in attendance to watch him speak, and not everyone who tried to go got in. 85,000 people. They just played the NFC Championship game last night in Los Angeles, and that capacity is around 70,000, okay? The NFC Championship. Now, I'm not saying more people wouldn't have gone if they had the space, the opportunity. Of course, come on. I know how big those events are. I'm not making the comparison any other way than to say 85,000 people showing up to see a politician speak. That's a whole lot of people. That's a whole lot of support, especially when the man pretending to be president right now can't get anyone to show up anywhere for anything. He can't even get his fellow Democrat politicians to show up at his events because they are so worried about his toxic failing brand rubbing off on them. Now, Trump's speech the other night was high energy and the crowd was going crazy the entire time. He actually said a few new things last night that advanced the narrative So I want to share some of those with you. It's time for the American people to declare independence from every last COVID mandate. We have to tell this band of hypocrites, tyrants and racists that we're done with having them control our lives, mess with our children and close our businesses. We're moving on from COVID. Whether they like it or not, we're moving on. It's time for the American people to declare independence from the mandates. Yes, I'm very happy he said that. But 
in that sentence, you hear the message. The American people have to decide when this stuff ends. And we have allowed it to go on and on and on. And we allow it to continue through our inaction and through our compliance. Every time we comply, we push the date further away. Everybody needs to simply stop complying. If you're around a bunch of angry liberals who don't know anything they're talking about and you can't stand up to them at this point, what are you going to do? Who are you? Honestly, how are you scared of these people? Are they going to take your job? Well, maybe they'll try. Maybe they'll try to harm your reputation. Maybe they'll talk behind your back. Is that going to be the worst thing that has happened to you in the last two years? If so, I would say you've had it pretty easy. Okay. My job went away day one. Gavin Newsom snapped his fingers and the career I had spent 15 years in was over. And that's all right. It is what it is. My life has changed and moved forward on a different path and a better path. I dealt with mock and shame and ridicule coming from, honestly, some of the the dumbest and most immoral people I have ever met in my life. But it was a joy for them to finally expose to me who they really were and how they really thought of me. Because now I don't have to carry the weight of pretending that we are friends any longer. It's freeing. But be honest and consider the sacrifices you have either made or been forced to make over these last two years. And if there's very few of those and you're still not prepared to stand up and speak the truth to some angry stranger, then the question becomes, why are you so content to let everybody else stand up for you while you remain silent and unharmed by all of this? If you figured out a way to have your life so removed from all of that, maybe it's time that you go stand up too. That's what we need because this stuff cannot continue. It is ridiculous at this point, and no one believes it. There is that 20, 25, 30% of the country, these people who just cannot admit they're wrong, right? And they know they're wrong. They just won't admit it. And that's fine. They're not going to admit it. But you can't keep giving them power. Trump also referred to them as hypocrites, liars, and racists. And of course, he is right about all three. But it has been a long time since a Republican politician went in front of an audience on a national stage, especially like Donald Trump, and said, no, that party, that party, they are the racists. They are the ones who are destroying urban communities. They are the ones deciding Supreme Court nominees based on their race and gender. They are the ones incentivizing poor people in urban communities to accept a pittance in return for getting the vaccine once or twice or six times as Project Veritas exposed last week. There are people who are in such dire straits financially that they are having their children vaccinated simply so they can get the money to buy groceries. And of course, we have watched as the world's poorest people have fallen into extreme poverty 
and the most massive transfer of wealth from normal, working, middle class, even upper middle class people to the wealthiest people in the world. Every argument I just made used to be the Democrat argument for why they were helping minorities, but they're not doing that. They're destroying minority communities and then trucking in millions of new ethnic minorities that they will put on the state dime and control because what they are doing is a slave trade. They are exploiting people's labor and their political power. They are bringing them here from another country. They are taking them from their homes in conjunction with the cartels. The Democrats have absolutely no moral high ground left. I mean, anywhere, but particularly when it comes to race and Trump referred to them as racist multiple times throughout this speech. And I think it's uh, very bold and very interesting. I'm looking forward to seeing if there is more to this, if we are going to begin seeing some of these stories that people like me will talk about and pretty much nobody else ever hears about. You got to remember the Democrat Party is the party of the KKK. They're the party of Jim Crow. They're the party of the South in the Civil War. They're the party of absolute urban destruction everywhere they govern. It is not by mistake. The Democrat Communist Party is a collectivist party. They are a racist party. It is impossible for people who believe in the sanctity and individuality of all unique people to be racist because we don't define people in groups. Okay? Everything they do depends on definitions of groups and pitting those groups' interests against one another to divide them and increase their own power. That is why it is always the Democrat Communist Party that is leading the charge on racism. Always. And I will remind you all once again, the Democrat Party, the fake president leading the Democrat Party right now was mentored by a Klansman named Robert Byrd. That was his mentor in the Senate. He gave the man's eulogy. You know, good old racist Joe Biden, the man that supported George Wallace, the man that wrote the crime bills in the early 90s and still takes credit for it. And the man who said, if you don't vote for him, you ain't black. That Joe Biden. Now, Trump always does a segment of his rally speech where he kind of shouts out the other people in the crowd, the other politicians around him who he's either endorsed or are there to support him. Sometimes he has them come up and speak and say something. But, you know, he had a long roster of speakers that day. Texas Governor Jim Abbott and Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick, they went up and spoke. And they're pretty establishment guys, so we'll see how that kind of plays out into the future. But one part that was very interesting was he named three or four attorneys general from around the country. Missouri's Eric Schmidt, the attorney general from Arkansas was there. Of course, Texas attorney general Ken Paxton was there. And I think that there were one or two others. It's interesting that the attorneys general were all there because you know who else was there was Mike Lindell. I wonder if they all had a chat 
about a particular case that may or may not be going to the Supreme Court in the near future. I think it probably is going to the Supreme Court in the near future. And I think it probably helps their case that Pennsylvania just ruled their 2020 election unconstitutional. They ruled that the implementation of Act 77 in the 2020 election was unconstitutional. In the judge's opinion, he wrote ab initio. That means from the beginning. Act 77 was put into practice in 2019. That means the 2020 election was held in an unconstitutional fashion. That means the entire thing is null and void. Pennsylvania, if the Republican politicians there had any courage, could simply decertify the election immediately. And we'll see how it plays out. Wisconsin, we already know that courts had decided against the indefinitely confined voter status. That could be 150,000 or more ballots, just completely unconstitutional. The drop boxes, those are all unconstitutional. That could be half a million to a million more votes. These are states Donald Trump barely, quote unquote, lost. And now every method that Joe Biden used to gain his fraudulent victories has been deemed unconstitutional. And it was unconstitutional when the elections happened. I would not be at all surprised to see movement by some of these AGs to bring the Lindell case to the Supreme Court in the fairly near future. So here is another segment that Trump has added into the mix now, and this is the one that is causing the media and rhino Republicans like Lindsey Graham to have absolute meltdowns yesterday and today. If I decide to run and if we win, if we win... And another thing we'll do, and so many people have been asking me about it, if I run and if I win, we will treat those people from January 6th fairly. We will treat them fairly. And if it requires pardons, we will give them pardons because they are being treated so unfairly. Now, anybody who knows anything about the truth of what has happened on January 6th and since with the people that the corrupt FBI and others have rounded up from around our country and called insurrectionists and terrorists and seditionists. If you know the truth about that stuff and you have just an ounce of basic human decency, then that statement is not controversial at all because people are being held without being charged for anything. They're being held pre-trial. Their trials are being delayed. Their attorneys are being prevented from seeing evidence that would acquit them. There are still 14,000 hours of footage, security camera footage from around the Capitol that are not being released, including to the defense attorneys. None of the people involved have been charged with sedition or insurrection. And oh, I know They scooped up Stuart Rhodes and they found some little partners for him and they're all being tried for seditious conspiracy. I'm sure they'll all be guilty and it'll all be a really big deal. And then Democrats can say, yes, it was an act of sedition. Except it wasn't an act of sedition, except on the part of the FBI and its informants and the other organized groups that 
were there to work as agent provocateurs, like John Sullivan, for instance, the little FBI asset, BLM, Antifa rioter, just always going around to their events, causing violence, directing people on what to do. He was right there when Ashley Babbitt got shot. He was filming video. He got paid for his video by all sorts of news organizations, and then he had to give the money back. But Friar Cuck, Jamie Raskin, used video from John Sullivan, Jaden X, in the fake impeachment after Trump had already, quote unquote, left office. How come he hasn't been charged with anything? So Trump says the thing about the pardons, and now all of the people whose public image depends on perpetuating the lies that they've already told about January 6th are coming out against this, saying it's irresponsible, it's dangerous, it's inappropriate. How could he say it? Well, he could say it because he's right. Those people deserve not only to be pardoned if they weren't involved in instigating violence or committing violence. They actually deserve to be compensated. They deserve to be made whole for what they've been put through. And I imagine that when the America First movement is back in charge of our government, we will be able to make those people whole. But as of right now, planning a pardon seems like the least anyone could do. I'd actually like to see Donald Trump go harder at this because this may be the first time he has mentioned the January 6th political prisoners who are rotting away in D.C. jail cells. There was another interesting moment as well as Trump shouted out not only Steve Toth, who's a Texas representative working for election reform and fixing 2020 in Texas, but he also called out truthevote.org. And that's the organization that has gotten all of the uh, like terabytes, maybe even a petabyte of geo tracking data where they have now analyzed and followed and found individual people who were working as ballot harvesters who would show up in the middle of the night and deposit tens or hundreds or thousands of ballots into Mark Zuckerberg's drop boxes. They have tracked them all. And Dinesh D'Souza was sharing a trailer yesterday for, I guess it's a documentary or something with the True the Vote information. It's called 2000 Mules. All of these people were referred to as mules, like a drug mule, for instance. They were ballot mules. So Trump is bringing the national spotlight to that now as well. And that's going to be a big one. So I said that it was good that Trump has now begun to say clearly that these people are, in fact, racists, and they are. But I want to talk a little bit more about that because there's some stuff going on right now that is pretty unbelievable, okay? So we have the trucker convoy up in Ottawa, Canada. Justin Trudeau says he's not feeling well. He tested negative for COVID, but he's going to self-isolate anyway because he was around someone who had it. So he left Canada completely. There are reports that he's in the United States, actually, because he didn't want to be in Ottawa with a 100,000 people in the streets screaming about how much they hate him. And they do. It is not some 
fringe minority. It is the vast, vast majority of people in Canada, and it's the vast majority of people everywhere. No one wants to be under the thumb of these petty communist tyrants any longer, especially not when they are the bastard son of Fidel Castro. And if you don't understand that Justin Trudeau is Fidel Castro's son, I suggest you look into it. There is a clear history of a relationship between Justin Trudeau's mom and Fidel Castro. You can see pictures of her with her arms around him. You can see pictures of him holding Justin Trudeau's brother. You can also just simply look at Pierre Trudeau and realize he looks nothing like Justin Trudeau whatsoever, but Fidel Castro looks exactly like Justin Trudeau. And it turns out the timing all works and Fidel Castro just is Justin Trudeau's dad. And the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Justin Trudeau is an authoritarian communist, but Justin Trudeau is the beta male version in blackface. In response to all of this, the truckers are being labeled fascists and white supremacists. They're being labeled violent. The news media is trying to come up with instances of violence that are being investigated. They are really trying to push that there was some massive outbreak of mob violence in Canada this weekend. There wasn't. They're reporting in horror that people had defaced some national monuments. I don't know if you were alive in the summer of 2020, but defacing national monuments was one of the main hobbies of BLM Antifa. They defaced the Lincoln Memorial. But apparently, if that gets done in a situation that they don't support, well, then it is a disastrous moral crime. But let's be honest. Does anyone actually believe that violence being instigated or monuments being defaced was something done by the crowd of truckers and anti-vaccine mandate protesters? course not. It's ridiculous to even pretend that that's possible. They were out there in a crowd of what easily could have been a 100,000 people, and they were peacefully standing and chanting and marching and holding up signs and singing songs. That's what they were doing. That's what Justin Trudeau is so scared of that he ran away to the United States. And then today, he announced that now he has tested positive for COVID, so he's going to need another five days away from Ottawa. So yesterday, I came across this political cartoon, some leftist propaganda that had a bunch of semi-trucks rolling down the road, and on the side of each one, it said fascist. Okay, these are just straight-up middle-class truckers working hard for a living, trying to support their families. Now they're being told they can't do their jobs unless they take an experimental gene therapy for a disease that can't kill them, knowing that the experimental gene therapy can. That's what was placed in front of them. And that's what they're protesting. Now, what is fascism? Okay. Fascism is the joining of the state and corporations. And they pursue authoritarian goals and oppress their populations. 
That is what fascism is. Fascism is not a bunch of middle class truckers who've spent the last two years delivering the goods that all of these people working from home huddled under their blankets with Netflix on in the background and Uber Eats on the way while they pretend to actually do a real job end up using and depending on. That's not what fascism is. These people have zero support from their government and they have zero support from the corporations. So there is no way in the world by any definition of fascism that what they are doing could be possibly considered fascism. Of course, that cartoonist doesn't know the definition of fascism and doesn't care about the definition of fascism. They believe that calling somebody racist or Nazi or fascist. These are the worst things that you can say, right? These are the words you use when you want to show all the other child brains around you that those people are very bad. They are so bad that I am going to use this label to talk about them. This is how I'm going to discuss these people. I'm going to call them fascists. You're going to believe me that they're fascists because they've just changed the definition as they have with all the other definitions. This is what I call the bad people. This is what I call the really, really bad people. And this is what I call the really, really, really bad people. But does anyone believe this? Like, there are some really child-brained leftists, especially in Canada, who are still on board with this stuff for sure. But we're talking 60, 70, 75% of the country. They're not looking at a convoy of truckers and thinking, oh, they're driving to Ottawa in support of white supremacy and fascism. Uh, Okay, well, how would driving to Ottawa support white supremacy and fascism? Can you just complete the logical chain for me? Because I don't get it. They are going to Ottawa to show that a mass of people are all adamantly opposed to being told that they have to inject themselves with an experimental gene therapy. Now, that logical chain is easy to complete because they say what they're doing, it is what they're doing, and it is what they're asking for. Are we really to imagine, right? This is what places like MSNBC try to convince their viewers of, okay? We're supposed to imagine that these middle-class people who've been working the entire time, right? A lot of them probably don't have college degrees. They don't make a lot of money. These are the people that the MSNBC communists, that type of commie, is going to say these are the stupid, ignorant people, right? That's what makes them so easily swayed by racism. That's why they're so obsessed with race all the time, except they're not. They don't talk about race ever. People on MSNBC talk about race 24-7, right? So the truckers are not obsessed with race. But they're still very stupid. They're very uneducated, which which means they haven't been indoctrinated into communism the way like Mika Brzezinski has or most of the people I used to know in Hollywood have. So these dullards, right, these dullards, these truckers that don't get the respect of the MSNBC types, you know, the very educated people, the elites. They still are trying to say that the truckers are driving to Ottawa pretending to protest vaccine mandates 
because they have some grand master plan about how pretending to protest against vaccine mandates is actually going to instill white supremacy in the government. Got it? Doesn't that make sense? (laughs) Isn't that exactly the kind of plan people so stupid and uneducated would come up with? Hey, guys, you know what would get get some extra white supremacy around here? Well, you know, I think I think a we should go to uh, Ottawa eh? and uh, we'll protest against the vaccine mandates. Hey, uh, Tim Horton, that's your name, right? Tim Horton. uh, How would us pretending to protest against vaccine mandates increase our chances of reigniting the white supremacy movement. Does anyone buy that that's actually what's happening here? This is the plan. This is the plan. This is what they're trying to do. Increase white supremacy by driving to Ottawa. All right. Well, which one of their demands increases white supremacy? It certainly can't be the vaccine mandate thing, but they must have a series of other demands, right? Oh, no, no. It's just it's oh, it's just the covid mandates. Maybe I'm the dullard and somebody needs to explain how this leads to white supremacy to me because it doesn't make any sense right now. And of course, liberal Canadians, communist Canadians had an utter meltdown yesterday. The leader of the NDP party in Canada, the third most popular party in Canada, he his name is Jagmeet Singh. He tweeted this out yesterday. Today, we commemorate five years since a terrorist attacked and murdered Muslims in a Quebec City mosque. We said never again. And today, conservative MPs have endorsed a convoy led by those that claim the superiority of the white bloodline and equate Islam to a disease. Does that make any sense to anyone? There is nothing about the trucker convoy that has to do with anything he's talking about. The white bloodline? Islam is a disease? Where are they saying that? Where are their signs saying that? There's plenty of footage from yesterday. There are plenty of pictures. There's plenty of video. You can look at what their signs say. None of them have anything to do with race or Islam. But there was also another very entertaining brand of leftist meltdown tweet about the trucker convoy. So they were there in Ottawa and they were honking. There was just honking throughout the city and leftists decided that they were basically covering their heads and hoping to survive the bombing of Dresden. Here's one of them. A Twitter user named Jen Jeffries, and I guess she has a blue check. She's something in Canada, perhaps, or just, you know, a communist who repeats all the slogans all the time. She wrote, could we just get one hour without the air horns blasting? Just one hour to think straight. Just one. And someone replied in what seems to be absolute seriousness. This is psychological torture. Even after they stop, the sound still echoes in your mind. Phantom honking. And there was another one I saw. Some guy writing, 
So they're all going home today, right? Those of us who work downtown will have no issues tomorrow, right? It's incredible to me that for the first time, these Canadian communists are actually being put out and negatively affected by the results of the pandemic, the side effects, if you will, of the pandemic. Other people have been censored. They've lost their jobs. They've been forced out of their jobs if they refuse to comply with joining a medical experiment with a drug that has not had actual FDA approval, that actually kills people at an alarming rate, that injures people at an alarming rate, that does not do anything to actually help you avoid or recover from a disease that almost definitely can't kill you in the first place. Are these people running out of money? Are they being forced to leave their homes? No. They had to listen to honking for one day and they're having absolute meltdowns. They've barely done a thing this entire time. The masks don't bother them. They like them. It allows them another barrier of separation from the no-no people. They don't mind masking their kids because their kids aren't individual people. Their kids are actually just reflections of them. They're useful for attention on Instagram. They like to get credit for how responsibly they're treating their children. So they'll mask them too. Oh, should we inject everybody? Okay, we'll inject everybody. Yes, just please keep allowing me to stay at home all the time, working from home, getting paid what I want to get paid, and keeping me away from the no-no people. I don't really want to have a real human life regardless, so it's fine. They're being put out by honking, and it's all they can deal with. And the people doing the honking, well, they're fascists. The ADL, the Anti-Defamation League, right, which used to be an organization that was committed to rooting out and calling out and addressing anti-Semitism. Okay, fine. Noble goal. They have changed. They have updated their definition of racism. And I want to read their new definition to you. The marginalization and or oppression of people of color based on a socially constructed racial hierarchy that privileges white people. So let's break this definition down a little bit, right? The marginalization and or oppression of people of color. That's where they start. So you cannot be racist against white people. You can only be racist against non-white people. So already that defeats any prior understanding of racism, which used to be and actually still is discriminating against people based on their race. And in that definition, the only sensible one, there is no requirement about which direction that discrimination must flow in. And then they say, based on a socially constructed racial hierarchy, okay, they are recognizing that there is a socially constructed racial hierarchy, and it's the one they always employ to create these definitions. 
The entire premise is that white people are automatically better. Therefore, they cannot claim that racism negatively affects them. And they do this while there are entire networks and entire media operations that are built around saying that white people are the cause for all the world's ills, which is just factually untrue aside from being racist. And then they claim that that social hierarchy privileges white people. Okay, so it is only possible to be racist against people of color, not white people. And it is only possible for white people to be marginalizing and oppressing the people of color. Now, these are the same people who say that racism is the most evil thing in the world. And racism is quite evil. But how do you get to the point where you can create a definition like this? A definition that requires you saying that on the basis of race, only one group of people in the world is capable of possessing such evil, right? Only white people are capable of such heinous evil, and it is on the basis of their skin color that they have this capability. Now, maybe I am a dullard, but that is extraordinarily, extremely racist. And the ADL's new definition for racism doesn't really account for that. The ADL's definition for racism is itself racist. In fact, it's as racist as something can be. But this is par for the course for the Democrat communists in America and the communists around the world. In fact, the fake president who was installed by the global communist movement and is himself a racist who was mentored by a Klansman decided that with a Supreme Court position potentially opening up at the end of this session when Stephen Breyer is set to retire, it was his responsibility to select a black woman To fill that role, he's not even considering any candidates who are not black women, which used to just be something that we would consider racist. And it turns out that most of the country still does consider it racist. Seventy six percent of America, according to an ABC News Ipsos poll, believe it's wrong for Joe Biden to limit the possible Supreme Court nominations to only black women. Only 23% of the country supports that. And the support doesn't even really raise very much when you're only talking about non-white Americans. It was still only 28% in favor of Joe Biden selecting a black woman, limiting the potential nominations to only black women. Even a majority of Democrats are against this idea. Only 46% of Democrats support Joe Biden's move to limit all the potential nominations to black women. But nonetheless, the Democrat Party will announce that this is the most diverse slate of potential nominees the world has ever seen, except they're not diverse. They're all black women and they all think essentially the same thing. And that, of course, is why they're being selected. They are committed to the Democrat communist movement, to the global 
communist movement. Their job, if they were to be confirmed, which I doubt any of them will be, but their job would be to do whatever is in the Democrat Communist Party's favor, a.k.a. whatever they are told to do, whatever the party wants. And you can generally depend on people like Elena Kagan and Sonia Sotomayor to do exactly what they are supposed to do. That's why they require total ideological commitment. So what they are set out to nominate is a person who will do whatever they want all the time, which means that that person is essentially controlled. And so who have they decided would be the best to fulfill that role of doing whatever they say? Well, a black woman. And that's kind of racist. And then there's this from yesterday in Breitbart. Biden filibustered a black woman judge's nomination for two years. President Joe Biden has pledged to nominate the first black woman to the Supreme Court, but he seems to have forgotten about the time he filibustered a black woman judge's nomination to America's second highest court for two years. And (laughs) I'm told that the filibuster is a relic of Jim Crow and that the filibuster is used to enhance white supremacy. Isn't it such a surprise that Joe Biden would do something like this? Way back in 2003 through 2005, when Joe Biden was still a Democrat senator from Delaware, President George W. Bush nominated Janice Rogers Brown to the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit. But due to her conservative views, Joe Biden and the Democrats filibustered her nomination, blocking a final vote on her confirmation. Bush nominated Brown for the District of Columbia Circuit in 2003 after she served as a justice on the California Supreme Court since 1996. She did not get confirmed until June 8, 2005. Newsweek provided more background on her conservative legal views, and this is clipped from Newsweek. Brown was born to Alabama sharecroppers and grew up in a segregated South. During her college years, Brown was a single mother with views so left wing that she later said they were almost Maoist. Her views grew decidedly more conservative over the years, and she has defended using electric stun guns on criminals who act inappropriately in courtrooms. Brown also wrote opinions that opposed affirmative action and supported a state law that required girls younger than 18 to notify their parents before getting an abortion. Janice Rogers Brown was reportedly considered as the possible replacement for Justice Sandra Day O'Connor, but that ultimately went to Samuel Alito. Beyond Joe Biden, her nomination to the circuit court was also opposed by then-Senator Barack Obama, who said her political views bar her from being an independent jurist. Isn't that amazing? Joe Biden and Barack Obama stalled the nomination of a black woman to the Court of Appeals, and a white man was put in her place instead. How woke. Brown retired from her position on the circuit court in 2017. Conservatives have since pointed out the hypocrisy of President Biden pledging to nominate a black woman to the Supreme Court after working so hard to oppose Brown. And you may recall that Joe Biden was one of the senators most opposed to Clarence Thomas's confirmation to the Supreme Court, and he is the only black justice on the Supreme Court. Joe Biden's racial record is worse Then he pretends everyone else's is. And a bit more on the pending collapse of the Democrat Communist Party's hold on the minority vote and the race narrative in full. This is from the Washington Examiner today. The headline is the Black Lives Matter scam. 
The Black Lives Matter Global Network Foundation did not raise a single penny for the first six years of its existence. It couldn't. The foundation wasn't even registered with the Internal Revenue Service as a charity. But after George Floyd's murder in May of 2020, tens of millions of dollars were given to this organization from major corporations and celebrities. And now no one even knows where all that money has gone. Even worse, there doesn't appear to be anyone in charge of the organization who can provide that information. Founded in 2013, after the death of Trayvon Martin, Black Lives Matter was little more than a hashtag and a website that loosely coordinated activism in communities across the country to, quote, intervene in violence inflicted on black communities by the state and vigilantes, end quote. And such a good job they've done in fixing that problem. For years, there did not appear to be a lot of outside resources directed to the organization, but that all changed in 2020. Unable to accept the avalanche of money sent its way, BLM channeled donations through Thousand Currents and the Tides Foundation until the IRS approved its application for nonprofit status in December 2020. Around that time, Thousand Currents transferred $66.5 million to BLM, a transaction personally signed off on by BLM co-founder Patrice Cullors. And let's just take a moment here. Thousand Currents is the fiscal sponsor for Black Lives Matter. They are, as you can see, the organization that allows Black Lives Matter to accept money from anyone through the Democrats' campaign donation site, Act Blue, and then basically hide it wherever they want. On the executive board of Thousand Currents is a woman named Susan Rosenberg. Susan Rosenberg was part of a group called the May 19th Communist Organization, that literally bombed the U.S. Capitol. She was put in prison and she was released from prison on Bill Clinton's last day in office. He pardoned her. And now she oversees the Black Lives Matter fiscal scam. Isn't that special? Black Lives Matter Antifa aren't just domestic terrorists. They pal around with terrorists, too. Colors later issued the organization's first ever impact report in February 2021, claiming that the organization had raised over $90 million in 2020, spent $8.4 million on operating expenses, and given out $21.7 million to local BLM chapters and affiliated organizations. But these were just top-line numbers in a flashy communications product. No details were given on who specifically was paid what. Just three months later, Colors left BLM claiming that she wanted to focus on other projects. She adamantly denied charges that she left the organization due to media reports that she had recently purchased millions of dollars worth of real estate for herself. And that's absolutely true. When Colors left BLM, she announced that activists Makani Themba and Monifa Bandele would replace her as senior executives. But Themba and Bandele later released a statement that they, quote, were not able to come to an agreement with the acting leadership council about our scope and work authority. Asked who is now in charge of BLM, Themba told the Washington Examiner, we never actually started in the position, so we never received any detailed information. Donors to BLM should have received some much needed insight into how their money was being spent this November when BLM was required by law to file a Form 990 tax return. It is now January and there is no evidence that BLM ever filed its form. Charity Watch Executive Director Lori Styron described BLM as, quote, a giant ghost ship full of treasure drifting in the night with no captain, no discernible crew and no clear direction. According to Candid, 
a website devoted to tracking nonprofit donations, groups like BLM, which claim to be devoted to racial equity, have raised over $25 billion since George Floyd's death. $25 billion. They also caused $2 billion worth of damage around the country in their riots. How much have they accomplished? What have they gotten done with this $25 billion? There is not one single thing that BLM has accomplished for the good of black people or the good of anyone. They have rioted and looted and supported all of it in public on television. They support all of this. They justify it. They rationalize why their violence isn't actually a problem, why their domestic terrorism is good, because they're going to solve racism, except they haven't solved racism. They tried to defund the police. Some cities did reduce the funding of their police and crime, theft, murder, rape, all up in all those places. And not up just a little bit, up quite a lot. And the candidates that are supported probably with part of this $25 billion take office as DAs and attorneys general. And then they make sure that criminals can be released right back out onto the streets. This is happening in the cities around the country. This is the result of BLM. And when people like me would say, hey, this is a communist organization. Oh, you can't say that. That's racist. Really? What have they done? They've ruined cities and elected communist candidates in, by the way, fraudulent elections. And we'll eventually get to the bottom of that. But they've done nothing but spur racial division and launder money and profit off it for the leaders of the movement. Patrice Cullors did not have $10 million worth of real estate when BLM started. So the organization's accomplished nothing. Her organization has accomplished nothing. She said that she was a trained Marxist back at the beginning. The goals of BLM. All communist goals. They even had the dissolution of the nuclear family as one of their initial goals. And like every other communist organization, the people at the very top get all the benefit. Money gets flushed out of the system to other people at the top and they achieve zero benefit for anyone. They only make things worse and they share a lot in common with the quote unquote vaccines in that way. What exactly have these billions accomplished? Are black lives any safer? Quite the opposite. Thanks to activism from groups like BLM, police budgets have been slashed in major cities across the country, and the number of arrests has plunged by 24%. As police were being defunded, murder rates skyrocketed, with black lives hit hardest. In 2019, before the defund the police movement, 7,777 black people were murdered, making up 53.5% of all homicide victims. That was already bad. But in 2020, both of those numbers rose. 9,941 black people were murdered the year George Floyd died, accounting for 55.8% of all murders. That is an additional 2,000 black lives lost to violent crime last year. In contrast, only 60 unarmed men were killed by police in 2020, and only 18 of those were black. The people who donated to BLM deserve to know where their money went. So do the people who live in communities that have been devastated by violence. Congress should investigate, and perhaps it will, starting next January. And so, like the COVID narrative, 
the election fraud narrative, the January 6th narrative, the Afghanistan narrative, the Ukraine narrative, the immigration narrative. The Democrat Communist Party's race narrative is collapsing as well. But continuing on with the idea of all of this money that gets filtered through a Democrat Communist Party organization and then simply disappears. The New York Times this weekend did their version of an expose about Democrat Communist Party dark money. And I am going to share that with you. But as we go through this, keep in mind that the New York Times doing an expose on something that is harmful to the Democrat Communist Party means that they are actually giving you just a little piece. They want to be able to get the information out there so you have some familiarity with it. And then they'll try to tell you that it's not that big of a deal. You know all the facts now. So if anybody tries to say that this is a problem, you know how to respond to them. That is what their quote unquote journalism is for. The headline from yesterday is Democrats decried dark money. Then they won with it in 2020. This is Kenneth Vogel and Shane Goldmacher. For much of the last decade, Democrats complained with a mix of indignation, frustration and envy that Republicans and their allies were spending hundreds of millions of difficult to trace dollars to influence politics. Dark money became a dirty word as the left warned of the threat of corruption posed by corporations and billionaires spending unlimited sums through loosely regulated nonprofits, which did not disclose their donors identities. Then came the 2020 election. Spurred by opposition to then-President Donald Trump, donors and operatives allied with the Democratic Party embraced dark money with fresh zeal, pulling even with and by some measures surpassing Republicans in 2020 spending, according to a New York Times analysis of tax filings and other data. The analysis shows that 15 of the most politically active nonprofit organizations that generally align with the Democratic Party spent more than $1.5 billion in 2020, compared with roughly $900 million spent by a comparable sample of 15 of the most politically active groups aligned with Republicans. The findings reveal the growth and ascendancy of a shadow political infrastructure that is reshaping American politics as mega donors to these nonprofits take advantage of loose disclosure laws to make multi-million dollar outlays in total secrecy. Some good government activists worry that the exploding role of undisclosed cash threatens to accelerate the erosion of trust in the country's political system. Hey, no kidding. You should probably stop taking all that foreign money to cheat in elections. Democrats' newfound success in harnessing this funding also exposes the stark tension between their efforts to win elections and their commitment to curtail secretive political spending by the super rich. In fact, they have no commitment to curtail that spending. And they only pretend to have that commitment so that Bernie Sanders can bring all his little socialists around the country on board. A single cryptically named entity that has served as a clearinghouse of undisclosed cash for the left, the 1630 Fund, received mystery donations as large as $50 million and disseminated grants to more than 200 groups while spending a total of $410 million in 2020, more than the Democrat National Committee itself. Where does that money go? Isn't that about how much Mark Zuckerberg spent too? Man, I wonder what they could have done to take that election with all of this money in addition to the Zuckerberg money. And of course, it's not just what the Zuckerberg money paid for, like the drop boxes. It's also 
who the Mark Zuckerberg money lined the pockets of. And Michael Gableman's investigation in Wisconsin is about to expose more of that stuff. I'm sure we will begin seeing that within the next few weeks. But nonprofits do not abide by the same transparency rules or donation limits as parties or campaigns, although they can underwrite many similar activities, advertising, polling, research, voter registration and mobilization and legal fights over voting rules. Oh, got it. Look at that. They just listed six of the ways that they stole the election just right out there. Voter registration. Well, do those voter registration organizations that take all this money, do they have access to the voter registries within the states? Oh, they do. So then they just do whatever they want with that money, right? And does some of that money go to enrich the people who are intentionally defrauding our nation and ruining one person, one vote and stealing American elections, which is, by the way, hard to describe as anything other than an act of treason, especially when they did all of this to benefit Joe Biden, who is absolutely, undeniably, overwhelmingly compromised by the Chinese Communist Party, the same Chinese Communist Party that released the COVID virus from the Wuhan lab, which to many was considered an act of war and may very well have been considered an act of war by the then sitting president, Donald Trump. And so all of these people helping to steal an election in a time of war for the benefit of ultimately the country who began the war. Well, not a lot of ways to describe that. The scale of secret spending is such that even as small donors have become a potent force in politics, Undisclosed money dwarfed the 2020 campaign fundraising of President Joe Biden, who raised a record $1 billion, and Trump, who raised more than $810 million. Headed into the midterm elections, Democrats are warning major donors not to give in to the financial complacency that often afflicts the party in power, while Republicans are rushing to level the dark money playing field to take advantage of what is expected to be a favorable political climate in 2022. This is nonsense, by the way. Republicans are just raising extraordinary sums of money, particularly America first Republicans and particularly on Donald Trump's side of things. But you got to love how they tout all these small dollar donations that go to just make it look like they have a huge base of support they don't actually have. George Soros just promised, just pledged to inject $125 million into the 2022 midterm election campaigns for Democrats. But sure, small dollar donations are a big part of their plan. At stake is not just control of Congress, but also whether Republican donors will become more unified with Trump out of the White House. Two Republican secret money groups focused on Congress said their combined fundraising reached nearly $100 million in 2021, far more than they raised in 2019. The Times analysis of 2020 data is likely incomplete. Lacks disclosure rules and the group's intentional opacity make a comprehensive assessment of secret money difficult, if not impossible. Nonprofits come and go, adapting to shifts in political power and tactics. Some exist in the gray space between philanthropy and politics. Many transfer money back and forth, and some can remain hidden in unexamined tax filings for years. And I've talked about this many times. This is the sort of situation that I point at when I talk about them writing the rules in such a way that they can still exploit them in whatever ways they want. 
You know, you cannot write the rules of the game you're playing and expect people to think that those rules are fair or that they're being fairly applied. But that is exactly the global communist agenda. They want to switch the rules just enough over and over again so that they can implement their systems and place their candidates in office. Yet a number of strategists in both parties said their own understanding comported with the Times findings that that the left eclipsed the right in politically oriented nonprofit spending and sophistication in 2020. You got that? Strategists from both parties. I'm sure they found a very diverse set of views. The shift was fueled by several factors. The big money right was fractured over whether to support Trump's reelection. Anti-Trump Republicans started new groups that were welcomed into the left's big money firmament, defending democracy together, co-founded in 2018 by conservative pundit William Crystal, spent nearly $40 million in 2020, 10.5 million of it from the 1630 fund. And Trump's baseless claims about voter fraud hamstrung Republican efforts to compete with progressive groups that spent heavily to promote early and mail voting. Now, first off, those claims were 100% correct. And second, They did not hurt his fundraising effort. This is absurdity. On the left, the prospect of a second Trump term spurred a new class of megadonors and helped allay lingering qualms about the corrosive effect of secret money among Democrats. And it's always impressive that people who are in the mainstream bubble within that central narrative bubble, like the two authors of this article, they have blinders on to what they themselves are thinking and saying, right? Opposition to Trump created a whole new class of mega donors. Okay. So some of the richest people in the world decided to throw their lot in with the Democrat Communist Party, the global communist agenda, and get Trump out of office. But still, we are told that the Democrat Communist Party actually exists to benefit poor people. And we are supposed to believe that all these worldwide mega donors are all just giving their money away for poor people. If George Soros wanted to help poor people, which would be more productive, giving $125 million to Democrats so that they can prevent America first from coming back into power or giving $125 million actually to poor people? Even if you were to take that seriously and say there could be a better effect by funding these politicians, well, then the politicians would have to figure out a way to get at least 125 million more dollars from taxpayers to extend it to the poor people themselves. Of course, that's not what George Soros wants or cares about, and it's not what the politicians he elects care about either. And if you don't believe that, if you still believe that the Democrat Communist Party cares about poor people, well, How come they've never actually helped? A range of donors, not just traditional progressive Democrats, had a wake-up call around 2019 where they realized that our constitutional republic was at risk and that they had to compete through whatever financing vehicles they could, which resulted in a tremendous outpouring of support, said Rob Stein, a longtime Democrat strategist and advisor to some of the party's biggest donors. And do you understand? All of the dark money being funneled in and through Democrat organizations was all necessary and all worth it and all well spent 
because the richest people in the world realized that there was a threat to democracy. And so they saved us by stealing our election. Stein, who now focuses on finding common ground between the parties, worries that the increasing embrace of secret money vehicles will usher in an ominous new dark money arms race and further undermine fraying public trust in government and elections. There is no legal definition of dark money, but it generally has been understood to mean funds spent to influence politics by nonprofits that do not disclose their donors. These groups are usually incorporated under the tax code as social welfare and advocacy groups or business leagues. Got that business leagues. So that's on the right. Legally, these groups are allowed to spend money on partisan politics, but it is not supposed to be their primary purpose. I mean, no one checks, but you got to just assume, you know, these hundreds of millions go here, but they're really, really aiming at something else rather than influencing party politics. The Times also included a select few charities, which provide donors not only anonymity, but also a lucrative tax deduction. Charities are supposed to completely abstain from partisan activity, but some have taken advantage of provisions in the tax code that allow them to engage in the political sphere through efforts that are technically nonpartisan, like voter education and registration. On the left, two charities raised tens of millions of dollars each for registration efforts that employed pinpoint targeting of demographic groups that typically vote Democratic. And you can imagine that what they are describing there are dead voters, voters that have moved out of the state, and illegal immigrants. The analysis also looked into two charitable groups, one aligned with Democrats and one with Republicans, which doled out millions of dollars in grants to nonprofits that engage in voter outreach and which spent millions more on litigation over voting rules. The left's advantage in secret spending holds true even if these charitable groups are excluded from the analysis. Kevin McLaughlin, who oversaw the Senate Republicans campaign arm in 2020, marveled at how Democrats had, quote, built an elaborate multi-billion dollar dark money network while simultaneously railing against the scourge of dark money, end quote. Republicans still gave heavily to political nonprofits in 2020, although the most well-funded efforts were primarily focused on Congress, underscoring how some donors remained committed to the party even when they were less enthusiastic about directly supporting Trump. And those people, of course, are rhinos. Two nonprofit groups affiliated with the Republican House and Senate leaders were roughly at financial parity with three similar Democratic groups, according to tax records and interviews. Beyond those nonprofits, McLaughlin said, Republicans are bringing spitballs to a gunfight. Back in 2005, Stein helped start the Democracy Alliance, which would grow into an influential club of some of the wealthiest donors on the left. Warning of the superiority of conservative infrastructure, he urged affluent liberals to create counterweights. They responded, seating institutions like the Turnout Group, America Votes, the Media Matters Watchdog Group, and the Center for American Progress Think Tank. That's John Podesta. But Democrats' concerns about losing the big money race spiked again after the Supreme Court's 2010 Citizens United decision. It expanded the kinds of permissible political spending by nonprofits and unleashed a torrent of dark money into elections, particularly on the right, where industrialists Charles and David Koch oversaw a political operation that came to outstrip the Republican Party financially. And that, by the way, is why so many Republicans now support open borders. Democrats publicly assailed the Koch operation as epitomizing a corrupt dark money takeover of American politics. Privately, they plotted ways to compete, 
Oh, so they're not that honest. Okay. Not long after Trump's inauguration, Stein returned to the alliance with an alarming new analysis outlining how, by 2016, the right spending advantage had resulted in political dominance in 30 states and nationally. But that probably has more to do with the fact that we are just a large majority of the country. As their outrage grew over Trump's presidency, so too did Democrats giving. Money went to an array of nonprofits working to undermine Trump and boost Democrats. Campaign watchdogs argue that since some of that spending went to functions similar to those of party and campaign committees, the same anti-corruption disclosure laws should apply. The watchdogs say that dark money groups flout the spirit of those laws by casting their efforts as focused solely on issues, not elections. In North Carolina, for instance, a group called Piedmont Rising received $7 million from the 1630 fund and spent $9 million, much of it attacking Senator Tom Tillis, a Republican up for reelection. Some of the group's ads were designed to look like no local news reports from an outlet calling itself the North Carolina Examiner. Also, Tom Tillis sucks. Senator Sheldon Whitehouse, Democrat from Rhode Island, who has sponsored legislation to crack down on secret spending, said the proliferation of dark money has unleashed a tsunami of slime that disserves democracy. Sheldon Whitehouse is also the member of an all-white country club in Rhode Island, and he stood up for it when he was asked about it last year. Find the video. It's great. But Democrats are the party that's solving racism. But he saw one potential silver lining. With any luck, now that Democrats are more seriously in the dark money business, he said, Republicans actually might begin to support some transparency. Biden last year urged the Senate to advance legislation to rein in dark money, but it was part of a package that was blocked in January. The legislation would have closed a loophole that allows nonprofits to transfer secret money into super PACs. And I'm sure the Democrats are so sad that they missed out on that. In 2020, the two main super PACs devoted to helping Biden's campaign received $37.5 million in dark money. The main super PAC devoted to Trump received $20.3 million from a linked nonprofit. A Biden backing nonprofit, Future Forward USA Action, with ties to Silicon Valley billionaires, raised $150 million in 2020 and transferred more than $60 million to an affiliated super PAC, while directly spending nearly $25 million on TV ads almost $2.6 million on polling and analytics, and $639,000 on focus groups. Federal records show. Hmm. I wonder where the other $60 million went. That group's top data scientist, David Shore, has emerged as a leading Democratic strategist. I try to elect Democrats. His Twitter bio reads, Tax records show that he worked 35 hours a week in 2020 for the nonprofit, whose primary purpose is not supposed to be partisan. Future Forward said it advocated for candidates that supported its agenda, consistent with normal nonprofit organizations like ours. You get that? So it's not partisan. They're just supporting the candidates that support them. The lines were just as blurry on the right. One Nation, a nonprofit affiliated with Senator Mitch McConnell, the Senate minority leader, transferred $85 million in 2020 to a linked super PAC, which in turn paid One Nation for rent, salaries, and other costs. Isn't this amazing how many of the uh, organizations on the right support people like Mitch McConnell and Tom Tillis? This is beginning to sound like another one of those times where it's just the global communist agenda supporting the Uniparty and hiding and laundering all the money. 
like every other thing they do. In each case, had the donors given directly to the super PACs, their names would have been publicly disclosed. Because the money took an indirect route through a nonprofit, their identities remain unknown. And so who knows what country they're from? Isn't it so great that the Uniparty put the apparatus in place so that rich foreign nationals could buy American elections and place candidates like Joe Biden in office? While the Kochs pioneered the use of centralized hubs to disseminate dark money to a broader network, the left has in some ways improved on the tactic, reducing redundancy, increasing synergy, and making it even harder to trace spending back to donors. <laughs> oh, which one of those probably has all the real effect? Is it the reducing redundancy? Is it increasing synergy, which doesn't mean anything? Or is it the part where they're making it even harder to trace the spending back to the, the donor. One of the leading purveyors of this technique now is the 1630 fund, which serves as a fiscal sponsor, just like thousand currents incubating and supporting an array of progressive projects. Amy Kurtz, the fund's president said those projects solicit donations to the fund and direct how the money is spent. All told 1630 provided grants to more than 200 groups, many operating in battleground States. While we are dedicated to reducing the influence of special interest money in our politics, we are also committed to level the playing field for progressives. Kurtz wrote in a post about the group's 2020 spending. So dedicated to reducing the influence of special interest money, but they can only do that after they get enough Democrats elected. It's just like them solving racism and, and them solving climate change. They need all the money now. They need it in whatever way they can get it. They don't want anyone to know where it came from. They're going to spend it however they need to, to buy off whoever they need to buy off. But later, once they take all the power, then they're going to get rid of all the bad things that they use to get the power. And then finally, finally, they will fix the problems that they themselves have created. And people who watch Rachel Maddow are dumb enough to actually believe that. They think, oh yeah, it's just a necessary evil. We hate it as much as we say we do, but we just have to keep doing it. 1630 is part of a broader network of progressive nonprofits that donors use to fill specific spaces on the political chessboard. The groups in the network, which also included Hopewell Fund, New Venture Fund, North Fund, and Windward Fund were administered by a for-profit consulting firm called Arabella Advisors. Taken together, the Arabella Network spent a total of nearly $1.2 billion in 2020, including paying Arabella a combined $46.6 million in 2020 in management fees, according to the fund's tax filings. You got that? The people at the top of the Arabella organization, well, they get a whole lot of money. While the Arabella managed groups do not disclose their donors, foundations backed by some of the biggest donors on the left have disclosed major donations to the network. Pierre Omidyar, the billionaire eBay founder, disclosed personal and foundation gifts of $45 million to 1630 and $1.6 million to Hopewell. A foundation backed by George Soros disclosed gifts of $17 million to 1630 and $5 million to Hopewell. Is George Soros an American citizen? No. Why does he get to spend so much money influencing American politics? 
Steve Sampson, an Arabella spokesperson, sought to downplay the firm's role or comparisons to the Koch network, casting it as providing administrative services rather than strategizing how to build the extra party infrastructure of the left. We work for the nonprofit, not the other way around, he said in a statement. And that that settles it right there. I mean, they had to provide administrative services. And those administrative services consisted of them directing $1.2 billion to political organizations. On the left and right, Dark Money Hubs mixed politically oriented spending with less political initiatives. The Koch Network's main financial hub gave $575,000 to the LeBron James Family Foundation. Hopewell gave nearly $3.8 million to a clinic that provides abortion services and more than $2 million to a Tulane University fund. In weighing which nonprofits to include in its analysis, the Times considered their spending on politically oriented efforts as well as their relationships with allied groups. Some major institutions, such as the NRA and the Sierra Club, are involved in politics but were excluded because they spent heavily on membership-oriented activities. The Times analysis includes three of the five Arabella-administered nonprofits, among them one charity, the Hopewell Fund. It donated to groups that work to reduce the role of big money in politics. But it also gave $8.1 million to a dark money group called Acronym, which spent millions of dollars on Facebook advertising and backed a company called Courier Newsroom that published articles favoring Democrats and received millions of dollars from dark money groups. I wonder if there was anyone to fact check those articles. It was paid $2.6 million by a nonprofit linked to House Democratic leadership to promote articles. That's a propaganda campaign. Hopewell also sponsored a project called Democracy Docket Legal Fund that filed lawsuits to block Republican-backed voting restrictions enacted across the country. It was led by a top Democratic Party election lawyer, Mark Elias. His firm at the time, Perkins Coie, was paid $9.6 million by Hopewell, according to tax returns, and an additional $11.6 million by the Biden-backing Priorities USA nonprofit group. Two other groups, the Voter Participation Center and the Center for Voter Information, spent a combined $147.5 million in 2020 to register and mobilize voters. They described their targets as young people, people of color, and unmarried women. Demographics that tend to lean Democratic and said they registered 1.5 million voters in 2020. And I'm sure that they were all real, legal American voters. Tom Lopak, a former Democratic strategist who now runs both groups, said their work was apolitical and, quote, an extension of civil rights efforts, end quote. You got it? So if you call yourself a civil rights organization, you can spend as much money as you want influencing politics, and it is not political. It's civil rights. Some groups on the right spent dark money battling Democrats in court over voting laws. An entity called the Honest Elections Project financed legal briefs defending measures that Republicans cast as protections against fraud, but that were being challenged by Elias as hurdles to voting. It appears to have been the intended recipient of $4.8 million from a dark money group known then as America First Policies, which was started by Trump allies and helped fund a pro-Trump super PAC. 
Honest Elections was housed within a nonprofit called the 85 Fund, a charity that is part of a network formed by Leonard Leo, a conservative legal activist, to counter what he saw as the left's increasing superiority in nonprofit political infrastructure. Leo left his position as executive vice president of the Federalist Society last year to become chair of a company called CRC Advisors, modeled on Arabella. Leo said in a statement that Arabella and its affiliated nonprofits, quote, have added significant firepower to the left's political agenda. We believe our enterprise can do the same for the conservative mission, Leo said. The Leo-linked groups, the 85 Fund, Rule of Law Trust, and the Concord Fund emerged as a dark money force in 2020, spending $122 million on issues that animate the conservative base, including judicial confirmation fights. But their resources paled in comparison to the biggest traditional dark money powers on the right, which have drawn criticism from allies for backing away from Republicans during the Trump years. And once again, one of the biggest propaganda techniques used in this article is the idea that there is still a left and a right, a Democrat and Republican party. And that is the distinction that we can and should make. That is an irrelevant distinction at this point. There is only the uniparty. And then there are people with their eyes open and their ears open who can see what the uniparty is doing at every turn. This is nothing more than the uniparty trying to buy elections from both sides because they want uniparty candidates in office. They don't care if they're Democrat or Republican. Charles Koch expressed regret over his network's financial backing of Republicans and proclaimed that his network had abandoned partisanship in favor of bipartisan efforts like overhauling the criminal justice system. The U.S. Chamber of Commerce was accused by a former political strategist of drifting to the left in the weeks before the 2020 election. A handful of ventures on the right have aspired to fill the vacuum. Mark Short, who once ran the Koch political operation and later was a top Trump White House aide, raised $15 million for a group started last year to fight Biden's domestic spending bill. Mark Short was Pence's chief of staff. That is not what this article just said. The New York Times writers surely know exactly who Mark Short is. So why didn't they just say that he was Pence's chief of staff rather than implying that he was one of Trump's main guys? That's how outlets like the New York Times generate fake news. They say things that can be technically interpreted as true, but intentionally lead you to a wrong conclusion. And that's what happened right there. They're trying to imply that Mark Short is Trump's guy. Mark Short used to run the Coke spending thing. So Trump's guy used to run the Coke thing. So the Cokes like Trump. Except if you infer that, you're actually wrong. And you can just hear a paragraph earlier what the Cokes real initiatives are. They want open borders and have always wanted open borders. All sorts of groups on the right want that because they want to be able to exploit the labor enabled by the slave trade on the southern border, while the Democrats want to exploit the political power. The globalist uniparty are the beneficiaries of all of it. There were some big battles that were going to be fought on taxes, and we did not see that there were groups that were prepared to fight them, Short said. Biden's allies created their own dark money nonprofit to rally support for the bill. 
And that is the end of the expose. And this expose sent Mark Elias into absolute meltdown, which is a little strange because this isn't really harming any Democrats. The takeaway here from those addicted to the central narrative is that both sides do it and it's necessary for the Democrats to continue to do it until they get enough power. So you shouldn't be mad. And either way, both sides do it. It's not going to change. This is just how politics are. Yeah, sorry. It sucks. No one likes it. We'll pretend to fix it. I mean, we won't fix it, but we will pretend we'll try to make you feel like it's not a problem as much as we can so that you will never ask us about it. That is what these articles are designed to affect in our culture. And for a long time, they were very, very successful at doing that. But that time's over because their narrative is collapsing. And I have a feeling that Mark Elias's time may be coming pretty soon. I'll be back tomorrow at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Masks and lockdowns don't work. They lied to you about a pandemic. And Joe Biden will never be president. In my mind, that's the end game. Whether you're a total newbie to podcasting or even if you've had a show before like me, you know how intimidating it can be to start your show. The tech side especially can be daunting. That's why I'm so grateful Anchor exists. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. They knock down all the barriers to entry. Let me explain. First off, it's free. I don't know how or why, but I'm happy about it. The platform's great. There are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. I can't even begin to describe how much easier it was to get my show on all the major platforms this time than it was a few years ago. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. That's right. You build your show, you make money. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place, and the company is committed to the success of its content creators. Go download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Thanks for listening. Follow the podcast on the Telegram Messenger app at t.me slash I'm your moderator. You can join the discussion at t.me slash I'm reasonable. I'm also on Gab and Getter at I'm your moderator. The Substack is I'm your moderator.substack.com and the merch site is cancelcouture.com. You can also go direct to that at shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. I'll see you next time out on the range. Moderator for tonight's broadcast. It's high noon. In my mind, that's the end game. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to follow what I'm reading and thinking throughout the day, you can do that by downloading the Telegram Messenger app and going to t.me slash I'm your moderator. On social media, you can follow me on Truth Social, Getter and Gab at I'm Your Moderator. I also have channels on Rumble, 
and BitChute. If you'd like to follow the writing, you can find me at imyourmoderator.substack.com. The merch site is cancelcouture.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, the best place to do that is Kofa. Go to ko-fi.com slash I'm your moderator. And all of these details will appear in the show notes with each episode. I'll see you soon down on the range. It's hell!